Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Milzoff, Deputy Features Editor at Billboard and Broadway fan and expert here. I've been away for a little bit, but I'm back. Have no fear. Uh, so if you listen to the podcast, you know that one of the many recurring subjects as musical theater composers go is Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim is pretty much considered the most brilliant writer of modern musical theater, the sort of god of modern musical theater. He wrote the music and lyrics uh, for shows like Into the Woods, Company, Follies, Sunday in the Park with George, Sweeney Todd, to name just a few. And all of those shows exemplify what many people, I would say even and especially people who insist that they do not like musicals, uh, love most about Sondheim. His music has complexity and depth. His shows have a really dry and often kind of dark sense of wit, maybe even cynicism in some cases. Uh, they're always thought-provoking and feel refreshing in the larger world of musical theater, which sometimes romance can feel like it replaces realism in musicals. But I think the reason Sondheim's scores are so incredibly powerful is that to balance all of that, he has a lot of soul as well. There is a kind of underlying sense of longing that really feels intrinsic to what it means to be human uh, that's present in all, on all of the stories and music that he writes. That element of his music is what stood out most to me on a new album called Sondheim Sublime by my guest today, Melissa Errico. Melissa is a longtime favorite of Broadway fans. She's definitely one of the most beautifully, classically voiced sopranos around. She starred in major roles in classic musicals like My Fair Lady and Finian's Rainbow, along with the original productions of new musicals like Amour and Anna Karenina. And I actually had the pleasure of seeing her in a great production of Sondheim's Passion, a few years ago here in New York. So I was excited to talk to her about that, along with why she made this Sondheim album at this point in her very varied career for this week's episode. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground You is Send in the cloud. Well, the 
first thing I want to ask you about is, I mean, I feel like making a Sondheim album is something that I'd imagine any actor dreams of doing at some point. But I would also think that it's not something you take lightly or you do at just any point in your career. So I want to know, why was now the moment for you to do a Sondheim album? Well, um, the uh, the real uh, impetus for doing this, though I wasn't thinking I would discuss this and so on, was, um, and to put you out of any suspense that I will create right away, <laughs> I, I had gotten some bad health news about 18 months ago. And at the same time as being asked to do a concert um, at 54 Below on a Saturday night, I said, yeah, I'll do a concert. Um, I was getting some bad news. Um, that was f- about my health. I had a uh, cyst and I had a tumor. And I was thinking to myself, well, my doctor said, you're fine. You're probably fine. Keep going. And I said, at, so, so concurrently with my life, I had an opportunity to do a concert. And I, mm-hmm. when faced with a, a complicated and humbling uh, moment, I thought to myself, I'll do, uh, you know, I said to the booker, I said, I'll do a Sondheim concert. And the more that I um, prepared the Sondheim concert, the more I was drawn to the ideas uh, in Sondheim that I thought would last forever. And so I'm well. I had surgeries and so on, and uh, it was not cancer, but it was a, something called a neuroendocrinal tumor, which is not good, and it was taken out. And so for many months, I worked on this music and didn't quite know where I stood. So to, to give you an absolutely honest answer, which I haven't told anyone before, um, this music came out of the most profound emotions. I've been in the show business for 30 years, and I learned so much from studying Sondheim's music in the light of something scary. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the sublime, the title is called Sondheim Sublime, came out of my art history background. I was a Yale um, student, and I was uh, very involved in the the art history uh, major that I had and philosophy major. But the idea of the sublime is a really popular idea in religion, in philosophy, and in art history. And it is the concept is a r- romantic pictures. It's the concept of beautiful things that are terrifying. Hmm. It's the marriage of beauty and terror. And as I looked at Sondheim, I saw that everywhere. Completely. Everything to do with marriage, everything to do with love and making children, making art, the risks of making art, the costs. And sex, it occurs often in sexy, sexy, sexy songs. People want pleasure in Sondheim, but they want pleasure in the light of the idea that time is running out. Hmm. How much pleasure can we get out of life before time runs out? Some people said, oh, you should sing in Buddy's Eyes. And I thought, you know what? No, that's not Melissa. I want, a, <laughs> I want something sexier than that. And about children and creation and carrying on and hope and uh, the wounds, you know, of our lives and so on. So it, it came out of a really profound impulse. So it, I would... The only reason I gave you such an honest answer is because that was such a strong question. Why Sondheim? And in light of my awe of all the actors who've done it before me, I had a really honest impulse. And I have 30 years of being an actor to bring to it. So I thought, well, why not now? Well, that's I I was going to say that that's as profound a description of what the essence of Sondheim is as I've heard. Very glad you're well, by the way. Thank you. Um, And, you know, I think that what stands out to me listening to it is really that you're taking a very, I don't want to say plain spoken, but kind of a very just like straight ahead approach to it. It's not about drama and artifice. Like it really feels like it's about just acting 
the words of the songs and and letting them you know speak which they do beautifully strangely it's the deep <laughs> it's the deepest letter i've ever written yeah you know, from my soul and i didn't want to um try to sell it it's really it's i did i was very conscious to just try well, actually i wasn't conscious of it. it really is how i sing you know if you look at all the albums i've ever made i've always been a, a person who took recording uh work seriously and i've worked with some of the best people in the world including now rob mathis this terrific producer works with Sting and you know, Eric Clapton and Elvis Costello right now and all these people. I have wonderful background in, in making records, but this record was meant to not be um, a piece only of theater, but a piece of soulful music. You mm-hmm. know? So I'm glad you feel that. And I think that, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this about the overall feel of the album, but I think that it is not the traditional approach to Sondheim to focus on the real kind of soul and passion and the idea of wanting that is so mm-hmm. central to his songs and not to focus on like the witticisms and the cynicisms. And that is what, you know, I think, uh, as I just said in my intro, uh, draws so many people who are self-professed, not musical theater fans to even like Sondheim. Mm-hmm. And how did you zero in on that? Was that like the accumulation of life experience doing his shows or something that just came to you in this particular moment? Well, I think that, you know, we're this album, uh, as well as being something that was a personal necessity, as it were, you know, similar to all the words of Sunday in the Park with George, that you you have to keep creating anything you do, let it come from you, give us more to see, all these things that are crucial to being creative people. And I'm in my midlife here. You know, I'm in my 40s and I have children and I have to keep looking at the impulse to want to create and not let myself get discouraged by time and the confusions of getting older and so on. So I had my own personal impulse, but also I think 2018 is a really um, difficult year. I think it's a difficult time in history for everyone. I think this Me Too movement um, was also happening at the same time. I think it brought up a lot of pain for a lot of women, and I thought um, in this industry there's a lot of issues about being heard, what you're really thinking, the idea of secrets, people having secrets. And I think Sondheim, a lot of his uh, characters are – have a lot of secrets and secret longings and so on. So I also just think I wanted to make a record that I thought was appropriate for our time where so many things are in doubt from our democracy to our jobs, our women's sense of worth, a lot of people's senses of worth, you know. Um, So I tried also to make an album for, you know, for people who are out there and what I think they're going through, you know. So I did not choose the the terribly clever, clever uh, side of Sondheim. Um, but if you ha- if you look at Sondheim as a clever, clever guy in a piece of New York City, what is the best thing about New York City? And that is, if he's one of the ultimate sort of New York Jewish intellectuals of New York City, cosmopolitanism. All people are welcome here, all shapes and sizes and mm-hmm. nationalities. The cosmopolitanism of Sondheim himself, though he wouldn't say he's an activist, I imagine, is a kind of activism. The island of the Grand Jatte, which is the island of Sunday in the Park with George, is a place where people from all walks of life and mm-hmm. all ages and um, uh, economic, you know, it's just it's a ble- it's a place where all people are uh, calmly spending an afternoon peacefully in harmony on the island. And I think, in the strangest sense, I hope you feel that in my record, my wish, you know, yeah. for what's super going wrong right now mm-hmm. in our world. Well, it's definitely comforting to hear as well. <laughs> yeah, so I tried to bring out the Sondheim I think we need right now. If you mm-hmm. want, I could do volume two. I could be super nasty. And, <laughs> you know, like maybe things will look up and I'll wear, you know, 
some sassy, you know, outfit and just sass for volume two or volume three. But the first one's sublime. Then we could do Sondheim sass and then we could do Sondheim. We, you can name it. You're smart. Yes. So. Well, I like Sondheim sass. I would listen to that. Okay. So we'll do that for volume two. But for this one, this is how I wanted to begin, both because I was uh, humbled and, and sort of enlightened by, you know, um, my own fears and myself and also looking at a world where so many people are being humbled and, you know, are living in doubt. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. And I certainly also uh, I never wanted to choose his super dreary songs. I don't think this is dreary. It's it's sensual, really, in a way, mm-hmm. you know, so. You've had various and diverse Sondheim roles over your career. And I wondered if you remember your first ever Sondheim role and what that was like. This is going to be the most confessional podcast that ever happened at Billboard. (laughs) I had a really strange idea in doing Sunday in the Park with George, which was my first show, and I hadn't met him yet, um, about the competition between Dot and George, the competition for how to spend your time. And George wants to spend his time finishing a hat and working, and she wants to be touched and she wants to live life and she wants to take at least some time to go to the Follies, for example. And there's that wonderful and long, difficult to sing sequence called Color and Light. Mm-hmm. He is painting furiously in with insane focus. And she is uh, getting ready to go to the Follies. Bernadette Peters famously at the um, makeup table with her adorable pantaloons and getting her makeup done and she can't wait she's all fidgety and can't wait to go on a date and he decides at the very end they're not going on the date he has to finish the hat and this sort of competition between a man and a woman for the night and I thought to myself well if I really wanted to get my man off the ladder and off the pointillistic uh, canvas (laughs) I'd take all my clothes off and I said but then it wouldn't some of the lyrics wouldn't make sense and so I had this idea came my to came right into rehearsal and I was like I want to be naked (laughs) and it was the first major revival and uh, so it required uh, some discussion about if that's possible and how do you do completely in a bathtub I said and I you know using my art history background I was able to say all these ateliers had no walls and they would have a bathtub in the middle of the room and that'd be completely fine she could be in the tub he could be painting and he'd be looking at her and getting more and more nervous Mm -hmm. and more and more focused and rejecting her nubile or beautiful very impressionistic bather which is completely appropriate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sondheim had to write new lyrics. And so that's my first memory was being so young and so brazen as to ask for changes on the first day. I would never do that now. But that's what a young person does. They go like, oh, hi, you're Mr. Sondheim. How do you do? Yes. Um, I have this idea, you see. It just means you have to change. He changed some lyrics. He put uh, it's on YouTube the the new lyrics is something about scent and soap and so as I was bathing I wasn't saying rouge and the colors I was painting I was painting with smells and scents. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So my my memory of the first production was um, the naiveness of somebody like you know me who just didn't realize you don't go up to a genius and <laughs> promote ideas of change on day one. But he was great, so it was great. And Raúl and I still think it was a highlight of our. Of our um, careers, we you know to date. Oh, yeah, I wish I had seen that. Well, it I really mean, it also fun. speaks to as you said that he's he's open minded. He doesn't see his work as just completely set in stone. No. I feel like recently hearing about this gender reverse company oh, in London, which very, I would love to see. Like he's very he's interested open to in art evolving. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Sondheim is very excited about. We we write to each other, and he is extremely. What? What? Like, oh rewind. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have a long correspondence with him this whole time. This year and a half has been uh, amazing. 
uh, it'd be like pen pals in the old days. Yeah. yeah a lot oh of my writing, God. <laughs> a lot of writing back and forth and a lot of advice and uh, chastisements as well, you know, when he wants to steer me. He thinks teaching is the highest profession, the highest calling. Mm-hmm. And he's very, um, I think maybe this year, one of my latest thoughts to him was that I think his sensitivity to the experience of being a, a woman might be much on his mind because of company. I think he's had to rethink what women think, what they're thinking, and see Bobby through that lens. And he does it so well. And he's been so compassionate to me. So, Well, I mean, I think that, you know, when I think of Sunday in the Park with George and Do I Hear a Waltz and I Saw You in Passion, mm. which was amazing production. Uh, I mean, even just those three, there's such diversity in the women you're playing. And I think mm. that... Sondheim does write some of the most complex women in musical theater. Oh, and there's so many, I hope, to come. (laughs) Knock on wood. I mean, this just, it is, it is Camp Sondheim. You know, if there was something called Camp Sondheim, I would sign up. I would go to. And I would go in the woods and just be in Camp Sondheim. I would pack my duffel bag and my water bottle that says Camp Sondheim, and I'm not coming back. Oh, my God. I would now, I I need that to exist now. What else would Camp Sondheim involve? What would it involve? Vodka, like vodka stingers, obviously. Oh, yeah, we could drink. <laughs> we could drink and cry and sing. A lot of drinking and crying and, and like exchanging things. of sexual partners, yeah. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. We have an independent movie to make now. Yes. I see it. This is an excellent idea. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask later, but what are your dream Sondheim roles for this next kind of stage of your career? Like, what would you love to do? Well, I think the one that's glaringly uh, on my or obvious in some ways, I hope, or, or just I would love to do a little night music. Mm-hmm. Um, I sing Send in the Clowns on this album. And, uh, you know, Send in the Clowns was the biggest challenge uh, to record because if you go on YouTube, you know, you'll hear every Scandinavian choir and every, uh, you know, Israeli pop singer and <laughs> everyone has sung Send in the Clowns. And it's it's daunting to take on the the song as a piece of recording, never mind the character in the play. But um, I just tried in that way to explore what it would be like to play Desiree. I just thought on my record, in some cases, I reinvent the songs or rethink them, as you, you'll see if you listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that case of Send in the Clowns, I just went right back to a woman in her 40s who's an actress who gave up her entire life for her career, which, of course, is something I have not done. And uh, But I can imagine what it would be like if I had. And um, now she's come to a point in her life where she really wants this man, and she wants to marry him, and she wants to have a life, this man she's always loved, and it's not going to happen. So it's what a wonderful piece of acting that song is, you know, the humiliation and the... um, That's the embarrassment and the the disappointment um, that she feels, but then she covers it up with all the terms of a performer's life you know, farce and making entrances and exits mm-hmm. all for this career. And she has to face, you know, that she'll probably have to take all this on to the next play. You mm-hmm. know, do you remember Noel Coward's song, um, If Love Were All? I don't think hey I Hey-ho, If Love Were All. She, it's all about uh, one's talent to amuse. And so an actress is, sometimes that's all you end up with is the talent to amuse. Hmm. And that's life. That's and that is the substance of to do one thing may preclude the other. And that is a really agonizing and interesting idea. Yeah, that's a really heartbreaking. It's really thought. heartbreaking. So I would love to, you know, explore Desiree in, in those terms. The talent to amuse and the losses that 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 
you know, occur after that. I feel like I feel like this can happen. I feel like yeah. this could be in the cards. <laughs> you have any friends? <laughs> yes. Tell someone at Billboard. <laughs> yes. It doesn't it doesn't seem <clears throat> seem so out of the cards. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, I, I was interested, too, by the fact that you're singing a couple of songs on the record that are written for men. Um, but are not songs that I think of as, well, a man has to sing this, like, No More, no and more, Marry Me yeah. a Little. Um, how did you approach the songs that were not originally written for uh, for an actress? Well, No More is a great piece of philosophy. I think it was more that looking for the songs that ask the biggest questions, you know, going back to the idea of the sublime. Um, even in art, the sublime was, was, um, was the big things in nature, the images from English paintings of mountaintops and glaciers and shipwrecks and huge storms, nature at its most splendid and and spectacular. How can you find any more sort of big overt content in Sondheim than in No More? We disappoint, we disappear, we die, but we don't. The idea that you die, but you don't, that occurs in so much of his work, Mm -hmm. even in... um, another place in the in the Miller's son you know I'll not have been dead when I die you know mm. this idea of of, of of death and not dying but we the big questions of no more are the are not things like as simple as like how are things in Glacomora you know these are big big issues um, similar in a way to his mentor Oscar Hammerstein who wrote um, you've got to be carefully taught mm-hmm. you know so just Big sublime things, the big questions, the big acts of nature, the big why are we here to suffer and die in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why yeah, are we here? It makes me cry every time. Yeah, for why <laughs> are we here to suffer and die in the first place? So I wasn't always so interested in all the little bickers, mm-hmm. the bickery songs that are bickering between people. I was looking for the places where he addressed the big, big qu- philosophical questions. Children mm-hmm. will listen. Children in art. Um things like that. And I believe I remember actually is a weird, very specific, you know, to the evening primrose, but I believe even I remember is a sort of a poem about everything we remember. Somebody's alarm is going off. It's time to wake up. Far from this room. (laughs) No, maybe the listeners can't hear that, but someone's alarm just went off. Someone has to get up. 
Um, no, I, I have to say, by the way, on I Remember that I, I love seeing any kind of bringing Evening Primrose back. I never got to see it, but I feel like I hear so much about it. I know. As this like lost Sondheim gem that it's, yeah. it's, it's cool to hear yeah. a song from it. Yeah. Um, if nobody knows what that is, it, it, what, it's, it's a perfect. The craziest premise. <laughs> craziest premise. And it, it, it is one of those things that also is kind of um, sublime about Sondheim, which is that he writes for extremely weird and specific circumstances. It could even if it's, you know, not while I'm around, you know, from Tobias's song from Sweeney Todd, uh, you know, you, 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 you know, how specific and strange can it get if it's a human pie, you know, it's a pie making company. Um, and, you know, in London, some, these songs that were be so specific and then become so universal. I remember it was written for a very particular and specific story a girl has been locked in a department store since she was six and she has not seen the sky uh trees or as much as a leaf since she was a child and she's been trapped so in in, in this department store and so she sings about a lost time and place um she sings about her past um in the song I remember, but she uses all the words and the metaphors of, of a department store, things like umbrellas and parcels and ink and paper and anything you would see, the vinyl, things that you, table, tablecloths, things you would see in a department store are the metaphors for her of the actual natural world. Mm -hmm. So, but somehow, in as weird as it is to get trapped in a department store, somehow that song is really about how we try to handle our losses. How do we try to restore our losses, you know, by mm -hmm. by recalling them, you know? It's a poem about a lost time and world of sensation and feeling that's Such, slipping, slipping away from all of our memories. You it's know? like the concept is like both bizarre and sort of romantic in a yes. weird way. Yes, and specific is what I'm saying. Specific, specific and yeah. highly universal, though, somehow. Specific but then universal because we all can relate to that idea of a lost time. You know, mm -hmm. so that's what's sublime about me, uh, him to me, to me, is that he writes so specifically to peculiar and specific things. And yet something really universal often comes out, mm -hmm. you know, so Completely. that's weird and sublime. That's awe inspiring. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a mountaintop or a storm. That's awe inspiring is, is the right thing to say. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about, which I think does ultimately relate back to Sondheim. Um, I was really impressed by the op-eds that you've written for the New York Times uh, in recent years about, um, you wrote one about the sort of difficult middle ground between being an ingenue in musical theater and being the like worldly older woman and another about sort of the like addressing problematic things about female roles in mm -hmm. uh, classic musical theater, um, both of which predated this moment that we're in now and I think we're sort of prescient in that way mm -hmm. um and I encourage everyone to look them up on New York Times. That, that first one by the way that yeah. was about aging my um I told my agent as you were saying it's a little bit ahead of its time I told my manager at the time I said uh that I was approached by the Times to write a piece and I think I was going to write about aging and he said well do not put your age though in the paper <laughs> I was like, but you did, and you survived to tell. By the way, tale. I didn't because I'll tell you one little quirk. But the New York Times is, is even if you write a two thousand word essay, which I have now a couple of times, you don't write your own titles. Oh, interesting. Oh, it's the not, headlines. The headlines. Yeah, the titles are not your domain. So whatever you write, someone else puts the big letters above it. It's funny, mm -hmm. right? Yep. They're no, great I, at it, by the way. So I have written New York Times stories, and oh. I, I know exactly what you're oh. dealing with. <laughs> so you know it's weird, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and as a writer, you always have to tell people afterwards, I didn't come up I, with the headline yeah, exactly. if it's not something you like. But. <laughs> yeah, it's, if it's a little sketchy. 
Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, but the, those pieces were great, and I really dig into, I think, continually relevant topics in, in art in general, but in musical theater specifically. And I, I was curious, like, what inspired you to do those at that point, and have, have, has doing that changed how you look at the roles you take kind of going forward? Um, have has being able to art, write for the times at all affected, just articulating or? what you did in those pieces because I think you can sometimes work out thoughts that you've had for a long time when you write in a way that doesn't happen if you're just sort of ruminating on them. Well, you're right. Actually, that's one of the things I've actually uh, thanked the the New York Times before for the opportunity to organize my emotions mm-hmm. because writing and publishing in any way cause is especially if you live turbulently as actors do we're always in response to this and that we're passionate but powerless it's um it's an, it's such a difficult um pursuit especially for someone smart never mind a woman um and not that I'm smart but you know what I'm saying but somebody yeah. thoughtful I'm definitely thoughtful I'm not skipping along um it sometimes can get confusing you know what to take what to do how to feel what and so ha- having the opportunity to write really did help me organize um organize my emotions about where I w- was in my career with aging and where women are in general. And the misogyny piece, I think, um, uh, was just an excellent exercise um, because so many people were de- are, were, uh, were questioning where revivals fit in the modern world. You know, do we keep reviving these old shows, Kiss Me Kate, et cetera, and um, all the Lerner and Lowe musicals? And I thought, whoa, I'm about to do one. So let me unpack and pack. So I, for three months I kept notes and I watched myself – pay attention to a classic role that could be um it is a bit misogynistic you know situation a girl being hypnotized and the man is in love with her when she's hypnotized mm-hmm. <laughs> sound familiar? A clear day. this is oh sorry this is in the musical on a clear day you can see forever uh so um i found my way in i found my way into that by writing about it and and i was i think able to def- to defend the play from uh being tossed out as a um, Alan J. Lerner exercise. You know, he was on his eighth wife at the time <laughs> that mm-hmm. he wrote it and so on. But I think there is a way to to um, to think about a lot of these characters. I think there's a few you can't do. I think a few ri- revivals shouldn't be seen. But we didn't put those in the article. Those got cut at the last <laughs> minute by one of my editors. <laughs> he said, well, let's just not mention those. Uh the the idea is the idea behind my piece was was to try to break down uh how sort of an actress would would approach uh, uh, would would approach a character that could look like she's a victim, mm-hmm. and and how can you save it and can and you know and look for acts of agency as they say this new word agency, um, but um, anyway I'm glad you liked it I think it's an ongoing problem you know everyone would rather do all new musicals but some of these musicals are great and just need some just need some strong people behind them so it's we don't perpetuate the wrong uh stories well i'm i mean for those reasons i'm very interested to see the new kiss me kate uh next next year i think yeah i think it's coming out soon yeah Yeah. and i mean i i recently had laura benanti on the podcast and we talked about my fair lady and this my fair lady as i think you noted also in, in one of your pieces is really giving Eliza subtly a degree of agency that oh, maybe sure. she doesn't usually have. By the way, we had it. That's in my piece. Yeah. And it was cut. As we got closer to Broadway, the commercial producers continued to get rid of the uh, feminist uh, 
really strong feminist radical things that mm. a very radical British director who's now died, Howard Davies, um, he was way ahead of his time. And that was – and the New York Times fought for that information. They were very interested that when I did my Eliza Doolittle, mm. the whole point was her um, her power and her um, uh, sense of self. And, and it – it all got changed. My my clothes were turned pink and purple. Everything was was modified. Everything that was radical was changed in that in that era. People didn't want to see the darker side of hmm. that of that fairy tale. So times I have was, changed. For the better. Times have changed. Yeah. So in some ways, I was in a transitional uh, transitional generation uh, with a transitional. You know, I I was a certain kind of a person as well. I was right out of college, really really intellectual, really wanted to do it, really wanted that interpretation to happen. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't – and there's no internet where you could say, screw the producers and I want to – and make it a bit of a fuss and fight for, you know. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to be heard. We used to just get shut down. Mm-hmm. Actresses used to just get shut down. And, no. the, and mm-hmm. yeah, the dimensions of an, of an artist, an actor, or a person's, you know, uh, experience as an art, actor was – no one was interested in all those dimensions in the old days. So. Well, I, like you said, I mean, if you're a thinking person, I think that maybe you weren't treated as one in the past in the way that maybe you can be now. Yeah, with your help and ever, anyone else's, just to let me, I'm, I really, you know, I'm in teaching. I taught a master class all summer at HB Studios. I have lots of students now. And, um, you know, I, it, the atmosphere at HB is electric, really. You know, people looking for role models, you know, places where they can ask questions and feel good about themselves. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people go into show business and women. Very, very scared, very powerless, very um, f- feeling victimized before they've even begun, feeling afraid to have ideas. You know, I do think it's changing, mm-hmm. but uh, people like Laura Benanti are doing a good thing because she's a ebullient and outspoken and smart girl who knows exactly her what she's what she's worth, and she must be a wonderful collaborator. You know. Mm-hmm. It's not actually so bad to be a collaborator and not just a servant. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, speaking of collaboration, a very yeah. good segue. Um, I I wanted to hear before you go a little bit. You we talked before the podcast about an exciting project you've been working on with a artist I really love. So maybe you can share with everyone a little bit about that. Oh, I've been working on a lot of actual new musicals. Um, I would hate to single out just one. I'm working with David Shire and Adam Gopnik on a musical. And, um, and we're doing that actually in January, I think 21st or 24th. 24th some, one of those two at 54 Below. That's a new musical called Table. And that's a beautiful, beautiful show. But I have um, done workshops and development um, readings for a, a bunch of new musicals, one which you and I share this great ad- admiration for Regina Spector. And she has a musical named uh, called Beauty which is absolutely fascinating. And Tina Landau did some workshops. And it's a fascinating uh, poem, really, about about beauty and power and a mother, a daughter, and the Sleeping Beauty myth sort of up, updated. I don't think I should say much more because mm-hmm. I don't know how much they want talked about it, but Regina Spector is another electric female who needs her voice on the, on the stage. Well, yeah. I, fingers crossed. I would love to see that. She's like your compatriot and curly-haired oh, woman. <laughs> she is a goddess. She is a goddess. There's a lot of goddesses out there. And uh, we got to all unite. 
Well, it's I'm, I think that also a really nice trend lately has been seeing more women creators and musical theater composers and directors and oh, yeah. seeing like all female creative teams. And yeah, and Georgia cool. Stitt is an exciting woman and mm-hmm. uh, obviously Sarah Brellis and just so many. It's it, I think you're right. And I do think there is a warmth. And, that, you know, I noticed with my album coming out, people tweeting, Kristen Chenoweth tweeting and Donna Murphy tweeting, you know, so being supportive of me and and. um yeah, I think if we, I do believe that if we all hold hands, you know, we're gonna get, we're gonna get far. And I think it's, 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 it's all happening. I'm optimistic. I'm while the world seems troubled, I think that we can probably come out of this, you know, better and definitely off better together. That's an excellent note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for Bless coming. You. Thank you. Thank you, Billboard. Hey. While I'm Melissa Erico's Sondheim Sublime is now out on Ghostlight Records. If you're a fan of the Billboard on Broadway podcast, please subscribe and give us lots of nice reviews on iTunes. You can find us on many platforms, including Spotify and Google Play. And you can find me on social media, on Twitter, at Rebecca Millsoff, on Instagram, at YaDownWithRMM. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway if you would like to tweet or post anything about the podcast. And hope to have you back next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.